0: All right, good morning, everyone. We'll go ahead and get started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, back into 2 Samuel we go. We are in the third chapter, and again, the break between 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel is really an artificial break. We talked about that some last week. It's all part of one seamless running narrative. So we would expect the themes to continue uh, from 1 Samuel into 2 Samuel, and indeed they do. Just to recap, by way of the immediate context, of course, we have uh, this reflection on the death of Saul and Jonathan. David hears about it while he's at Ziklag. This Amalekite comes with a phony story, and David, of course, has the Amalekite put to death, And David goes on to have a lament for Saul and Jonathan. This is all chapter 1. And this is the first and probably the the most important instance in which David actually mourns his enemy and is kind and shows love to his enemy. A A theme that continues, and as we said last week, what David does that is... righteous and exceedingly righteous ends up being politically expedient too because as as he mourns Saul word gets out of David's being a reasonable guy and loving the guy we loved and even loving his enemy and so that doesn't have a huge effect in terms of the politics of the kingdom at this point but it does sow that initial seed and we're going to see this same attitude and behavior carry over from David toward his enemies and it's going to have huge uh, and profoundly good effect on the politics of the nation. So, he mourns the loss of Saul, his enemy, Jonathan, his very good friend. And then chapter 2, of course, he is anointed king at Judah. This is his second anointing as king, the first done by Samuel way in advance of all of this. The second here is king of Judah, and then we're going to see uh, the Lord willing today his third anointing, where he's finally anointed king over all of Israel. Now, no sooner is he made king of Judah, and Ishbosheth, one of uh, the two sons remaining of Saul, is propped up as the king of Israel. And you have this dynamic where David and his commander Joab against uh, Ishbosheth. The son of Saul and his commander Abner, and you have a civil war going on in Israel. And again, it, I think it's easy for us to simply skirt by this without realizing how devastating this was for the people of God. And you know, I'm really—I mean, we're, we're, there's no doubt been conflicts before. This is this is in many respects full-scale civil war going on, and they're only on their second king, so it hasn't gone well. There is this tragic event, which again is listed in here because it drives the narrative, where we have Joab, who again is the commander of David's army, and Joab's brothers Abishai and Asahel, and Asahel of course is pursuing Abner, and Asahel is struck down by Abner. And one gains a heart and sympathy for Abner here because, of course, he doesn't want to do it. He tries to talk Azahel out of pursuing him. Azahel continues. Abner says, okay, well, you get what you get. And he kills him. But that sets up a rivalry then. Joab and Abishai, if they hated Abner before, uh, they certainly hate him even worse now. But in chapter 3, we see that things are not stable on the side of Ishbosheth. And larger Israel, Chapter Three. What we saw is, uh, as well as David marrying multiple wives and having uh, many sons, we see then that Abner switches sides. Abner gets upset with Ishbosheth and switches sides. This is no doubt devastating for Ishbosheth, who it doesn't seem to have much strength politically, militarily, etc. He's just happens to be the son of Saul and that's why he's in the middle of it. Abner is really very much a driving force. Now arrangements are made for Abner to come over to David's side. That's what we see in the middle half of uh, chapter 3 or the first half I should say of chapter 3. And then we have this little point in the narrative too where David asks uh, Michal back. You see that in chapter 3, verse 14. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michal. Of course, Saul and his treachery had given Michal as David's wife and then had, uh, to spite, uh, David had given Michal to another man. He weeps and mourns all the way to uh, Baharim, chasing after her, but really he should have known better And so Mikal is back with David. And then I think we left off right there, if I'm not mistaken. Let's let's just go into chapter 3, verse 17. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin and then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. In other words, after Abner decides enough with Ishbosheth. It's kind of hard to get a read on how much of this is political versus how much of this is believed, you know, in Abner's heart, in his mind, actually, because then he goes on to say by, you know, the Lord had promised David, by the hand of my servant David I will save my people. Did Abner suddenly come to conclude this? <laughs> Did he not know this before? Uh, so who knows? Who knows? Abner may well be a little duplicitous here. Be that as it may, he is working here to unite Israel, behind uh, Judah and underneath David's rulership. Chapter 3, verse 20. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Now again, this is, uh, this is extraordinary. This isn't something you'd see Saul do. David is preparing a feast for his enemies, and for those who have attacked him and his army and who have been opposed to him. So already in David's ministrations, and his ruling, you see a type and form of Christ who is merciful and gracious even to his enemies. That is certainly in view here. Verse 21, And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord the King, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. This sounds good to David, of course, so he sends Abner away, and he went in peace. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. And I think the sense there too is you know, more or less with safe passage. That's the idea, that he was at peace with the king and the king had sent him away, and so he, he should have every expectation of being able to move about without any problem. Verse 23, when Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king and he has let him go and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing so whether whether Joab believes this or not is up for debate but at least this is what he says to David Uh, one thing is absolutely certain that Joab hates Abner not only by way of rivalry but um, because of the because of the death of his brother Azahel at the hands of Abner okay So, it goes as we might expect. Verse 26, When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately and there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Azahel, his brother. All right, so Joab gets his revenge. Abner is murdered at the gate. When I read that as a kid, I thought that must have been a really hard punch to the gut to kill him. Uh, Probably there's a weapon involved, even though the text doesn't say. Verse 28 Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner, uh, even though Abishai's role in that isn't explicit, because he had put their brother Azahel to death in the battle of Gibeon, back in chapter 2, verse 23. All right, so interesting, we find this out later, of course, um, but here David, David, of course, extricates himself and his kingdom and says, look, this was a, a unilateral act on the part of Joab Um, we have nothing to do with this. We did not want the death of Abner. Of course, if they were in any way found guilty of the death of Abner, that's only going to heighten the tensions and make even worse the civil war. So David very clear to extricate himself from that. And then he curses Joab, which is quite significant, especially the familial curse here, because, uh, of course, um, if you look at the study note on chapter 3, 28 through 29... David was obligated to punish evildoers. Later on his deathbed, David called for his nephew Joab's execution. So again, Joab is his nephew, so there's familial relations. So the fact that uh, David is cursing Joab's whole house, it really shows, I think, in some respect, a lack of bias on the part of David. He's willing to curse those who have blood ties with him. And, you know, there's room for discussion in terms of the actual justice of this, but David does get around to uh, treating Joab as he deserves under the law. It's just uh, on his deathbed, he gets around to it. David called for his nephew Joab's execution, the study note says, and gives us a reference to First Kings 2, 5 through 6. And then the study note adds this comment, yet now for the sake of peace, David lessened the punishment and instead cursed him. David tolerated Joab as a member of his family and perhaps due to his military skills. Okay, now just as uh, David mourned Saul and that's surprising and a big deal, now, David is going to mourn Abner. And that, too, to your average Israelite, is going to be surprising and a big deal. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner, which must have been a bitter, bitter pill for them to swallow. Because, of course, Abner had killed their brother. Objectively speaking, it was their brother's fault for running in, you know. Um, but anyway, They feel bitter enough about that to kill him. They have just killed him, and now they're going to be forced to mourn for him. So there are, uh, I mean, again, it's not execution. It's not the fullness of justice. But there is some pretty, uh, pretty strong justice here meted out upon Joab and company. So they're forced, as the king says, tear your clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. They buried Abner at Hebron. You know, this is the, this is the functional capital city. So this is like, um, you know, the death of some famous statesman. This is, an, you know, taking place at the capital. This is with full honors for Abner. And uh, Joab and company are forced to be part of it. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. Which I think is remarkable. Uh, David... What would cause this is probably David can see very keenly what so many of his time can't see, namely that these are his his brothers, these are flesh of his flesh. This is you know even if they're separated by tribe and by politics and all of this, you know they're they're sons of God. They're sons of uh, Abraham together. So David uh, mourns and weeps for Abner, his again his former enemy. It goes all the way back to the days of Saul. It was Abner, of course, who was laying beside Saul, guarding him when David was able to sneak in and steal the the spear and water jug. So David wept at the grave of Abner, verse 32, and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, so he chanted this lament, is probably more literal, should Abner die as a fool dies? Um, the sentiment there is that Abner is a valiant, you know, man of war, an honorable man. He should not have he should not have died as somebody who, you know, some miscreant who gets stabbed over a deal, you know, in the street at night. So that's the sentiment there. He deserved a more honorable death. Should Abner die as a fool dies? The answer should be no. Your hands were not bound. Your feet were not fettered. Um, you know, you're a free man, etc. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. So, this is a great shame. Like, this is a travesty of justice and, and a public accusation. I mean, a public shaming of Joab and company for what they've done, a public honoring and, uh, of their enemy, who also is David's enemy. I mean, up until very recently, of course. So, this is a very remarkable lament. And again, David here by showing superabundant kindness showing mercy and love even for his enemies, which is very much Christ-like, very much showing forth Christ, also is extremely politically expedient. Again, we don't get the sense that David is being manipulative in any of this, but those who loved Saul are forced to see that David's not that bad of a guy. Those who loved Abner are forced to see that David's not that bad of a guy. And we're going to see that this continues for David. Okay, so... That takes us then to the very tail end of 34, and all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore saying, God to do to me, God do so to me and more also, if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it. And it pleased them as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So, in other words, particularly those people of, of Israel who were separated from David and his kingdom, they're watching very carefully and you know, looking very scrupulously at David's treatment of Abner. And even when he's told by those present, okay, David, console yourself, eat, he refuses to as a sign of deeper mourning and still more respect and being inconsolable at the loss. And, of course, this gesture uh, means the world to those who are allies of Abner. And so their hearts are all the more endeared toward David. So that's the sentiment being expressed here. I mean, not only and the exceedingly righteous thing to do, the objective and right and correct and moral thing to do. But then it has this added blessing that uh, it's politically expedient. The people of God uh, love him for this. Okay, verse 37. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. Well, we know that, of course, from a narrative perspective, looking back, reading, reading the narrative here. We know that, but if you were in the situation, you wouldn't be so sure. Abner goes to King David and, you know, he's, he's turning over to David's side and then suddenly he ends up dead. Yeah, well, maybe David had something to do with it. After the funeral, after David's uh, lament after David's refusal to be comforted and his desire to go on fasting, the people are assured and come to the, you know, the absolute conclusion that David had nothing to do with this. Verse 38, And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? Again, this is high praise. The prince isn't any kind of formal title. It just means you know, a, a mensch, a uh, uh, great man. Um, and it, you know, that's, those terms are really uh, overlapping, has fallen this day in Israel. And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than I. Of course, that's Abishai and uh, Joab. The Lord repaid the evildoer according to his wickedness. So this is, uh, you know, again, this is kind of a remarkable statement from David. I was gentle today, though anointed king. You know, look, I could have done whatever I wanted. I certainly didn't do anything to Abner. And in a, I suppose, I don't, I'm not sure that David means this directly, but there's even a sense in which, of course, he's gentle to uh, Joab and Abishai. So you see a reign here on the part of David that's very different than the reign on the part of Saul and the other kings of the world, David stands out as a, as a merciful king, ultimately pointing us to the son of David, David's son and David's lord, who's our merciful king. Okay, everything clear enough so far, or any, uh, any thoughts or questions you have? All right. Let's, uh, let's go on to chapter four then. When Ishbosheth. Saul's son heard that Abner had died at Hebron; his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Again, this is this, those who had sided politically with Ishbosheth. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of one was Benah, and the name of the other Rechab. Sons of Rimon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth, for Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Getaim and have been sojourners there to this day. Parenthetical remarks here from the author. Verse 4 Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. This is a sad story. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. So, you know, on the same day, his his grandpa, the king, and his dad uh, die in battle, and his nurse took him up and fled. He was the, uh, of course, as one of the heirs, his life's in danger immediately. So the nurse takes him up to to flee, and she fled in her. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was uh, Mephibosheth. So, very, very sad story there. Um, and just kind of, uh, you can see that this is, the study note says that this anticipates chapter 9. So, again, let's not spoil it for ourselves. But this piece of information otherwise seems a little disconnected at this point. But it's uh it's going to sew a thread. So then um, Mephibosheth is a member of Saul's family. He is the sole potential heir to Saul's throne, apart from Ishbosheth. So that's why that's inserted here. So if something were to happen to Ishbosheth, not that you would read the summary to this chapter, um, then Mephibosheth would be all that's left. All right, verse 5. Now the sons of Rimon the Berathite. Ricab and Benah set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth, as he was taking his noonday rest. Why don't we have those? I think we should have those. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, so some, you know, pretense. And they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Ricab and Benah, his brother, escaped. Uh, seven, verse 7 just restates in a different way what happened previously, so don't be confused by it. When they came into the house as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. So, you know, again, re, I think restated there for the emphasis of, of what they did, and, and it's intended to put a bit of distaste in your mouth here, I think. These are, um, you know, these are de- these are described as his as his captains. They're underneath him, so they've now risen up and killed him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night, and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, "Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life." The Lord has avenged my Lord, the King, this day on Saul and on his offspring. Is that music? It's a truck vibrating. Oh, okay. I thought maybe it was bass music, or you know. No. All right. It would be nice if it was the Lord returning, of course. <laughs> one, one can always hope. Uh, Okay, so where was I? Sorry about that. Um, Yeah, here is the head of Ishbosheth, they say to the king, they say to David, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord. So the Lord, that is God, has avenged my Lord, um, David, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Bana, his brother the sons of Rimon the Berathite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news. Remember the Amalekite from, yep, here we go. I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more than, or excuse me, how much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Well, the stay note doesn't give us any details on why the gruesome nature of you know the dismemberment after the death, I'm sure it has some kind of cultural symbolic meaning. I didn't take the time to look it up. I wasn't that interested to be honest with you. Uh, but what we see then again with David is uh, Ishbosheth is his enemy and we, people assume he's going to want his enemies treated poorly, that's incorrect. Uh, David, David despises that, and so he ends up punishing the wicked men, just as he punishes the Amalekite at the beginning of this text. And now we see the third, as uh, the third of David's enemies, so to speak. David treats them very well. So, uh, with Saul, David treats him very well. With Abner, David treats him very well. Now with Ishbosheth, David treats him very well. And. Um, How should I put it? Well, David's action towards those that kill Ishbosheth has a very positive effect on those who loved Ishbosheth, right? And, and I think David is, I think David is, you know, fully justified. Again, I think he's doing the righteous thing here. Especially in his description, it is interesting. He calls Ishbosheth a righteous man, isn't it? That's really fascinating. Um, but he you killed him in his own house on his own bed like you killed an unarmed man you know and david did. that's like it's like with prejudice in david's eyes and so he has them executed he honors uh, what remains of ishbosheth by putting him in the tomb of abner and i think that there's i think that if i remember correctly there's a familial relation between saul and abner and ishbosheth so that makes sense okay um, chapter 5, verse 1. Yeah, so this is David once more honoring his enemy. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. And, I mean, this is significant. Not, I mean, not just simply because their leader's dead and so they're coming over, uh, but because they see the way that David treated Ishbosheth and they say, Okay. We are your bone and your flesh. In times past, this is verse 2, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. This is a huge, huge line in terms of our messianic theology, our, our Christology of the Old Testament, because here David, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, all quite literally, um, is called shepherd of my people. And so just as David is, of course, a shepherd, prior to his becoming a king, now as a king he is a shepherd, he's the shepherd king, and that is precisely then the context and contours that the gospel writers give us with Jesus, who comes to be both shepherd and both king. Good shepherd and king of kings, lord of lords. You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. Again, it is precisely these terms that Jesus Christ, uh, these terms describe him, and he fulfills these things in himself. Verse 3, so all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with," with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. So anointed the first time by Saul, the second time um, over, over Judah, now finally over all of Israel. Yes? I'm thinking all these people are going out and acting in David's... ...of those online by punishing those who act on their own, thinking they're pleasing him, but they're really not acting with his permission with his authority, um, by punishing them, he's really asserting his authority, right? You don't do yes or no without my permission. Yeah. I think that that, that too is a byproduct of, again, I, I really don't, I don't, who knows, but I don't think that David's sitting back calculating this, be, trying to be super manipulative, right? He's, he's doing this super righteous, honorable thing as one who has faith in God and God's promises to all his people. But it has these effects of unifying people around him and, as you bring up, uh, really establishing the lines of authority. That, nobody's going to go against you. Yeah, exactly. And if I, don't, yeah, if I don't tell you to do these things, don't think you're doing me a favor. You might end up dead. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Right. It's true. It's true. So with David you see this exceeding and extraordinary mercy but you also see a willingness to punish evildoers in no uncertain terms and to do swiftly and decisively. I mean let's not get the perspective that uh, David's a pushover here. I mean he has these men killed and has their hands and feet chopped off and you know so David is uh, in that respect too I think he really very much reflects the character of our Lord Jesus who he you know he wants to be merciful toward all, toward his enemies. Uh, but there is a line, and and you cross the Lord, you reject the Lord, and He rejects you, and it doesn't go well for you. So we see we see both of those aspects in uh, in David and in and in Jesus. Okay, verses four and five uh, may be added in later. I think the ESV, yes, the ESV makes a note that the Dead Sea Scrolls lack these verses. So who knows? But either way, um, they're accurate enough. Verse 4, David was 30 years old when he began to reign. Can you believe that? It's amazing how, how young men were in previous generations when they accomplished great and amazing things. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. That's the period we've just covered. And at Jerusalem, well, we haven't got there quite yet. He reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years, 40 total. Some nice biblical numbers there. Of course, seven. And then 33, kind of oddly pointing to the 33 years of Jesus' life, isn't it? Yeah, it's just interesting. Verse 6, and the king and his men went to Jerusalem. Now, uh, just a very brief background. Jerusalem, of course, is this fortified city that doesn't belong to Israel. Even though it's in the heart of Israel, no one's ever been able to conquer it. It's this fortified city that has just been impenetrable. So the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. In fact, uh, Jerusalem was called Jebus at this time. And so that's the Jebusites. That's where all that comes from. The inhabitants of the land, so these are Canaanite, unconquered Canaanites, pagan people, in the midst of the promised lands, even still to this day. And they, who said to David, so they taunt David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. Uh, thi- uh, um, yeah, well, why not, why not just make comment there? So the point is, we are so well fortified in this city, that we'll put the we'll put the blind and the lame on the ramparts, and you do your worst, and they're gonna they're gonna keep you from, from defeating our city. Okay, so there's this hyphen in the English text, so this uh, this kind of break in the grammar, thinking David cannot come in here. That expresses the sentiment of their statement. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. So you can see the kind of anachronism here uh, since this was already done at the time of the writing of this document. But it's it's called Jerusalem. It's called Zion. It's called the city of David uh, after David conquers it. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Okay, so in other words, David took that personally. He knew of this water shaft. In fact, I think the study note, let me try to find the study note. It has something interesting here. Yes, the water shaft, this is the study note on 5 eight. Um, probably quote-unquote Warren's Tunnel. I don't know anything about it, but Apparently it's still around. A narrow opening cut through the rock to obtain water from the Gihon spring when the city was under siege. Okay. So um, in, anyway, David knew about this. He sends his soldiers up and, uh, and the city's taken. I wonder, let me just glance here. I wonder if this comes up in Chronicles or Kings. It probably does to give a little bit more information. Though even if it doesn't explicitly, yeah, there is reference to Chronicles I'd ha- and Kings. I'd have to go look, but I think I think it's safe to say the sense of this is that men sneak in through this uh, through this opening, this this water pit, this water tunnel, and basically breach the city so that the gates are opened and in comes the main army. I think that that's probably the sense. It's, it's probably not the sense that the entire army filters through this little hole in the ground and up. Um, that's, I think that that's unlikely. I think it's much more likely that uh, a, a war party goes in, a strategic force goes in um, through the water shaft and they open the city and in come the... Oh, went in. perfect! It's the ESV. Uh, Joab led the attack and was therefore made David's chief commander. Mm, very good. So, kind of what you said. Yeah, you some background there from good. the from the ESV. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. Okay, and of course, what even though it, even though to be honest with you, I'm not exactly sure how to make sense of it in English yeah. translation. What is what is clear, nonetheless, is that David is mocking mocking the Jebusites' boast. You know, as he says, um, I mean, go up go up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind. We understand that, who are hated by David's soul. That's all fine. He's not actually talking about lame and blind. He's talking about their soldiers, right, that they said were lame, they were just going to put the lame and the blind there. And then this next statement, therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. I, I, I'm not exactly sure how, how to literally interpret that other than it's quite clear that it's part of David's. Uh, mockery, and it actually becomes this kind of byword or saying uh, from that time forward. If you've got the if you've got the um, Lutheran Study Bible on page four ninety three, you've kind of got this neat little drawing down at the bottom, the city of the Jebusites, um, and you can see how it's set on a hill. And down in the right-hand corner, Jerusalem is shown from above and at an angle. And therefore, uh, wall shapes appear different from those on flat maps. Wall locations have been determined from the limited archaeological evidence. Houses are artists' concept, just to be aware of that. But that gives you a sense for how it's a fortified city, a city set on a hill, and why in many respects it would have been very difficult you know using regular methods to actually attack and defeat plus this water source prevented them from simply being you know blockaded and made to uh, die of thirst okay up to verse 9 and david lived in the stronghold and called it the city of david and david built the city all around from the millow inward, uh, and the millow. There is a study note on that phrase. Hmm. Oh nine, there it is. Uh, that that's literally an area that is filled in like a rampart or a citadel. So David built the city all around from the millow inward, and David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts was with him and Of course, hosts means warriors, which we're going to see in the narrative, the sense of which um, I guess i'll mention this here, but it becomes even clearer in this in this narrative and in this text that w- we, in our, in our minds, tend to have such a, such a stark separation between church and state, uh, given our American context and culture. But what's actually going on here, while it's an entirely physical kind of battle, and the, there are battles between the Israelites and their neighbors, it's perceived biblically and, and historically at the time as being spiritual warfare. So that the nations are leading their gods into battle, and it's perceived as the God of these people against the God of these people. And that's, that's like a lot of the consternation and shame of losing a battle if you're an Israelite. It's like, it's more than just you lost a battle, it's, it's, it, your name, your, your God's name is being shamed among the, uh, the pagan peoples. So, in other words, we have to every once in a while, I think we have to do this as Americans anyway, pause and really look and think about these military battles the way they would see them. They would see it as spiritual warfare. Yahweh against the pagan nations. Yahweh against the, the fallen gods. And quite arguably, um, there's a sense in which, too, you get this sense in in a number of Old Testament, Old Testament texts that... Uh, That these are fallen angels, these are actual gods, uh, fallen angels, leading the the enemy nations against the people of God. Okay, so we'll we'll have opportunity to talk about that a little bit uh, further down the line. But I simply bring that up because of this language, the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of armies, would be a good translation for us in English, was with him. militaristic picture God is fighting with his people God is fighting in and through his people he just has them do the impossible I don't know what the modern equivalent would be taking over Russia in the middle of winter you know something that's never been done before (laughs) and doesn't seem like it would ever be possible Uh, Jebus has just fallen and has become the city of David uh, all because of God verse 11 and Hiram king of Tyre Tyre of course on the Mediterranean up in the northwest wealthy coastal pagan city um, and uh, a place that Jesus visits for example so Hiram king of Tyre sent messengers to David and cedar trees also carpenters and masons who built David a house. This is, uh, this is to curry favor, one nation currying favor with another nation. It's not at all, I mean, the politics, I don't even know well enough to comment, but um, wasn't it France that gave us the uh, Statue of Liberty? So nations give you big gifts, Sometimes give other nations big gifts, and so that's what's going on here is uh, Hiram king of Tyre is sending this we're going to build your palace for you David we're so glad you've arrived on the scene and by the way treat us kindly uh, we're your neighbors so that's what's going on here it's, but it's also kind of neat because it means that you know, the pagans are enriching God, you know, God's people God's, God's anointed one here and recognizing his kingship verse 12 and David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel that, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. I mean, again, this is, David sees this as more than a personal fulfillment of God's word. It's certainly that, but David sees this also as a fulfillment of God's word to the whole people of Israel, which, again, this is the pro, David sees a fulfillment of the promise that goes all the way back to Abraham. Uh, there is finally a, a great kingdom, a unified kingdom, and a great king uh, who's recognized by the kings of the world um, here in, uh, in Israel. So this is, this is a high point, to be sure. A high point. Okay, a little further then. Verse 13. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. This is not a great thing. God explicitly says in his word, I think uh, the study note points out Deuteronomy 17, 17, that Israel's kings were not to acquire many wives. So this is one area where certainly David has a shortcoming, and uh, certainly you know, we know the familial troubles of David down the line, so they're hinted at here even, as we go on, verse 14, and these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem, Shammua Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon, and if you follow the study note down, these four are sons of David and Bathsheba, so the story isn't told here, but if you know the story, already it's being hinted at that you know, this acquiring of many wives and concubines on David's part uh, is not going to go all well for him. Now, the list continues on into verse 15. I'll go ahead and butcher these names too Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. All right, so lots of wives, lots of sons. In an earthly sense, this looks all great, but just recognizing those names, we know there's uh, tragedy and sin and heartache involved here. Uh, And then, of course, the study note points out that many of these may be... I mean, this was just expected of kings because a lot of these marriages are political in nature and they represent alliances and maybe even economic trade. I mean, we, this is all appalling to us as Americans primarily because we've become romantics in terms of marriage and relationship, which my only comment there is how's that working out for us? <laughs> Not very good. So people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. You know, this is a different, a different time and maybe has certain benefits to it. Well, on to verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel. Ah, the Philistines. Now there's a lot of drama here, of course, as you've been following along with the narrative as we have, because uh, you know David went over there, he almost got killed, he had to pretend to be mad, he escaped, he went over again, he ingratiated himself with one of the rulers of the five cities, kind of. David was you know, deceiving him the whole time and killing bad guys while saying he was killing Israel and... You know, there's this whole thing. And then, of course, David was going to go fight with the Philistines against Israel. Or was he? You know, we never get to find out because the Philistines get suspicious and send it back. So there's all this drama here built into this. I mean, this is the time in the movie when you need serious flashbacks to bring it all to a head. Because this, this is a major thing. Verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. So again, they they see him away from his city. They think, now's our time, let's go and trap him. David catches wind of it. Back down to Jerusalem he goes. Verse 18 Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Raphaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Which, by the way, after we did chapter after chapter after chapter of Saul, isn't this refreshing and refreshingly simple? Lord, should I go or not? And then the Lord gives an answer, and he does it. It's just beautiful, because with Saul, this was all mangled and messed up. All right, so will you give them into my hand? David continues, and the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And I love that answer from God. I think it's the word certainly. If it just said, go up, for I will give the Philistines into your hand, it just sounds normal. But when he adds, go up, for I will certainly give, it sounds exuberant, doesn't it? It sounds joyful. I love that. I love that. It's so endearing. The Lord answers him joyfully, like, yeah, why not? Go for it. Certainly. So, uh, verse 20. And David came to Baal-perazim. Interesting name. We'll touch on that in a minute. And David defeated them there. So David's first major military victory as king of all Israel. And he said, The Lord has burst through my enemies before me like a bursting flood. Therefore the name of that place is called baal Perazim. Now, interesting name, because if you go to the ESV study note, that's if you've got the Lutheran study Bible in the right-hand column, the micro print there, size 4 font, uh, Baal-perazim means lord of bursting through. But what's interesting is when we think of the language of Baal, we often think of it as a false god and frequently it is. But Baal can also be the generic term for lord or god. And so here the language of Baal is used explicitly for Yahweh. Baal-perazim means Lord of bursting through. And in this case, David clearly means Yahweh bursting through. So a fascinating use of language and a reminder that um, generic terms like Baal or God um, can be used of of Yahweh, can be used of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And and here it is. So uh, this bursting through like a flood is also fascinating language biblically because it ties into uh, the flood of Noah it ties into the Red Sea. So in both instances, um, God's, God's enemies are being put away. The flood of Noah wiping out the enemies of God. The Red Sea flooding Egypt, wiping out the enemies of God. And here, the Philistines being wiped out by God. And then all of this pointing to, to baptism and the baptismal flood that's going to wash away Satan and his power upon us, sin and death. So uh, we have that kind of theme and motif going on here too. Therefore, the name of that place is called uh, Baal-perazim, and then verse 21, and the Philistines left their idols there. See, this is the point that I was getting at earlier. And David and his men carried them away. So, and no doubt they were, you know, they were either put in a subservient type position, you know, to Yahweh, or they were uh, burned or d- otherwise disposed of. But, but this is the point that in seeing... Um, that the armies are going in with their idols. This is God versus God. That's this is a theo, warfare in this period is a theological thing. It's really weird for us to wrap our minds around. I mean, I don't really even fully get it myself, but it is something to keep in mind how they view this. Okay, verse twenty-two, and the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Raphaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the enemy of the Philistines." So, how is it that he's hearing the, you know, the, the sound of marching up in the trees? Well, this is the Lord's army. This is the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of, of hosts, Yahweh of armies. And so, he's saying, look, you know, this, not that David needed to be made aware of this, but you know, the Lord is fighting for you, the angelic armies are fighting for you and with you. This is a, this is a religious event that's taking place, a spiritual war that's taking place. And so um, Israel, the angels, and Yahweh are all against the Philistines. Verse 25, and David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. So there's uh, his, his second major military victory as king over all. All right, well, David has uh, set up his city. Things are going very well. He's won two major victories. There is this one loose end, and it's a, it's a big one, um, the Ark of the Covenant. And so David David has this in mind, and this really, you know, again, you can show the heart and mind of David to be so focused on the things of the Lord. He's got in mind the Ark. I mean, Saul would not have had any, the Ark in mind at all, other than to try to exploit it and run it into military, you know, into military conflict, only to have it stolen. If you remember that, so uh, David here wants to honor the Ark of the Covenant, and that's chapter six. Which, since we've just got a minute left, we'll we'll break here, and next week we'll go into Second Samuel chapter six. The Lord be with you.